Taking Stock with Mandy Johnston. Thanks to Skillnet Ireland, driving business success through innovative training and upskilling. This is News Talk. You're welcome to News Talks Taking Stock. I'm Mandy Johnston. Coming up on today's programme, battle scarred Boris suffers yet another damaging week, and this was a brutal one. We're going to talk to the Guardian's Will Hutton about the Prime Minister's political prospects. And there was great news on the Irish Exchequer front this week, not so much on inflation. We look at the implications with the leading economist, Dan O'Brien. And as Irish consumers take to the banking app Revolut like ducks to water, there's a whopping 1.7 million Irish customers online now. We'll ask if the Irish Central Bank is creating the right environment for fintech companies to operate here. You can get in contact with us by emailing takingstock at newstalk.com or on Twitter at takingstockNT. First up today, I'm joined by Will Hutton, political economist and writer for The Observer and Guardian newspapers to discuss a week in which Downing Street under Boris Johnson found itself incredibly the subject of a criminal investigation. Will, you're very welcome to Taking Stock. Thanks for joining us. Thank you. Now, it's been another extraordinary week in UK politics. You've been observing it for a long, long time. What did you make of it all? I think the the first thing that's obvious is that It's as nearly certain as you can be in politics that Boris Johnson will now not lead the Conservative Party into the next general election. Mm. I think it's inconceivable that donors and actually the mainstream of the party will allow a man whose reputation for lying has become international and now he's um, ensnared in another very nasty controversy over a line he used in the House of Commons um, in Monday, where he accused Keir Starmer of being complicit in not prosecuting Jimmy Savile, which of course was completely false. And it was a straight lie across the dispatch box. And it's really upset a lot of senior Tory politicians. And we, on Thursday, Munira Mazza, who's the uh, one of the kind of key people in the policy unit number 10, resigned over it. This man cannot go into a general election and survive the cut and thrust of a general election. So the only question now, I think, is when he goes rather than if he goes. And that's, I think, the settled private opinion of the majority of Conservative MPs. It's getting in the way of, fundamentally getting in the way of international issues. Um, What's happening in the Ukraine is profoundly worrying. It's extraordinary that he's permitting a kind of unfolding debacle in Northern Ireland. Domestically, his levelling up white paper, which was a flagship policy, I mean, it got cursory notice in the British press and British media. I mean, it's a really substantive kind of a commitment and move, actually, a multi-year commitment to try and level up the regions in Britain. Um, but so focused um, and so distracted uh, by that focus is the political, journalistic, and actually business world. Uh, kind of meeting senior business men and women during the course of the week, I was struck by how they are concerned by what's going on. You know, you know, Britain has a disintegrating government, and it raises fundamental questions too about the Conservative Party. Andrew Mitchell, a former cabinet minister, who spoke out in the House of Commons on Monday, saying that he'd lost the support, he withdrew his support from the prime minister. 
very very profound thing for a senior Tory former cabinet minister to say the following day said that and I think this is a good analogy that actually the ongoing party gate is like battery acid in its impact on the reputation of the Conservative Party and I think that's true there'll be a delayed reaction but it's unfolding in front of us and all my professional life all my journalistic life the Conservative Party has been seen as the kind of natural party of government, the party with ballast, the party with bottom, the party that's reliable, the party that you may disagree with ideologically, but at least it's kind of sane. They are the representatives of the British elite. They speak with educated accents. They are sound. All of that is being shredded. So it's a profound week in British politics, brutally. The direction of government at home and abroad, the reputation of the party and the standing of the government. And I'm going to go into some things you've said there about the the Conservative Party in, in more detail in a few moments. But in accepting what you're saying, that it's a matter now of when, not if, Boris Johnson will eventually go... I would like you to to examine why not now. Is it because it's the lack of a credible alternative leader within his own party? Or is it the lack of an alternative government offering in the UK? Because sometimes the reason why uh, politicians don't move against a leader is because if they were to do so, they may look irresponsible in the public's mind. So do you think that those two factors have had a bearing on the fact that nobody has, or or the 54 people who needed to move against him have not done that yet? Well, I think um, there's two things going on here. Mm. I mean, I think, first of all, the Conservative Party and Conservative MPs in Parliament don't really take the threat of the Labour Party as seriously as they should or could. And that's partly because of the, the Labour Party itself in 2019 under Jeremy Corbyn very nearly broke open as a party. And it's still only just recovering. People talking in the Labour Party about long Corbyn and Jeremy Corbyn there. Kind of a devastating impact on, on the Labour Party's standing. So, you know, not frightened that there's a government in waiting that's riding whole highly in the polls is making the process go slower than it would otherwise. I mean, Tory MPs don't feel the urgency to get rid of him because of the external threat. What they're calculating is whether they themselves are as um, Tobias Elwood, a senior Tory, he said when he put in his letter to the 1922 committee, which is the kind of governing committee in the sense of the, of the Tory party, and if there's 54 letters, as you said in your question, then that will trigger a vote of no confidence in the prime minister. Um, he said that, that um, we are better than this. And there's that sense of pride in Toryism and the Tory party, which is um, slowly, I think, but it's slow. You know, politicians are in the votes business and they are aware that Boris Johnson won them an historic victory in 2019 and they feel they need a good reason and they don't want to move now and maybe lose the vote of no confidence. And and then have to wait a year to yeah, to maybe do yeah. it. Yes, yeah, I see, yep. I, I see what you're saying. Yep. Um, so, you know, there's, there's a kind of, so, you know, there's a kind of crude, there's, cr- there's crude calculations of electoral advantage and not enough people saying, as actually I'm, amazed by the number of conservative commentators who are saying this, you know, that actually, you know, just on moral grounds, this man has to go. We cannot, you know, this country, you know, 
cannot have such a man leading it, but not enough of them actually own that as a proposition yet. And to tell the truth, not enough of the electorates. You know, the fact that the Labour Party are kind of only 10 points, 11 points ahead in the polls, and not 20 points ahead in the polls, and that actually when the, the ship looked as though it was steadying, that the poll lead kind of came back to six, seven, eight points, and not enough British citizens are actually prepared to kind of castigate Johnson. So there's that too. You mentioned Tobias Elwood's intervention there. There have been some quite extraordinary interventions over the last uh, number of days. Here in Ireland, you know, we've, we, we know Julian Smith's past life very well. He was a very able Northern Ireland secretary when he was here until he was replaced by Brandon Lewis, of course. Um, now, he hasn't raised his head too much since that position, but that changed on Tuesday. What did you make about his intervention when he criticised uh, his leader's comments about the Labour Party leader, Keir Starmer? As soon as I saw it, I thought this, is, this was a, another kind of landmark moment, really, where, you know, a Conservative politician of some integrity was demanding a retraction and withdrawal of the remarks about, about um, Keir Starmer. That, again, is kind of a, was, a, was an indicator of where opinion is I mean, Johnson thought that he could go on the offensive and lay about him in a barnstorming kind of manner, Mm. rally his back benches behind him. But I mean, there's now so much scepticism, scorn, and actually concern about his reputation as a liar, that actually for him to kind of throw that what was plainly a kind of false insult across the dispatch box in the House of Commons rebounded on him like a boomerang. Mm. Far from actually helping him out, Julian Smith's remarks were the trigger for what's happening now, you know, a resignation of a senior policy chief mm-hmm. from number 10. She was, she's been pretty important to his operation, Manira Meza. I mean, she's, you know, she's the person who kind of checks appointments. She's the, she's the chief invigilator. She's been a kind of real kind of Johnson enforcer. Uh, I mean, she, and for her to resign gives you some sense of actually how people, whatever their ideological hue, want to distance themselves from a man who's just contagious. If you've just joined us, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson. We're talking to Will Hutton of The Guardian about Boris Johnson. Now, Will, you mentioned there the resignation of Manira Mirza. And then over the course of the next couple of days, other advisors followed her. What are the effect of those resignations going to be on his chances of survival? This is further evidence of the disintegration of the Johnson government. And I think Manura Mirza's resignation in particular will hit him hard. And the fact that the Chancellor distanced himself from the Prime Minister saying, frankly, honestly, I wouldn't have said that, is also very telling. Rishi Sunak is the most likely successor to Johnson. And he knew very well when he said that, um, that he was positioning himself as um, representing a different culture, a different attitude um, to government and to integrity in public life. We learn that ministers are considering their position. And I think that the, uh, the kind of Johnson's view has been that I'm kind of the boss. I set the moral line and my subordinates fall in line with that moral line, whatever I consider it to be. And actually, uh, many people in the Conservative Party to their credit, aren't prepared to go along with systemic lying and over-the-top charges that aren't true and actually the denigration of Britain's public culture. 
it's clear now that um, he's on the slide. There will be 54 letters, I think, sooner rather than later. There's a chance that he may um, win uh, a vote of no confidence, in which case he'll limp on. And then finally, rather like Mrs May in 2019, he'll finally go because one or two senior cabinet ministers will simply resign. And he won't be able to put a government together. Um, and the beneficiary of all this will be the Labour Party. More profoundly, I think that Brexit did represent a right-wing coup or an attempted right-wing coup, but there was never the political base or cultural base for it. And actually, um, many of the difficulties that Johnson's in is that he simply hasn't got the kind of popular support or the support even within his own party for the extreme positions he's taking. So uh, expect more, expect more people to leave number 10 and expect some ministerial people, expect some ministerial resignations. And when a big figure in the cabinet like um, Rishi Sunak decides to throw in the towel, that will be the end of the Johnson government. I want to read you back some words that you wrote in December uh, and I actually remember at the time being very struck by them. Um, you were writing about the North Shropshire by-election and you were you were um, imploring on, on voters that enough was enough, there had to be a, a decisive message sent. And you wrote that the careless lack of integrity and honesty that are the hallmarks of this government culminating in taking the public for fools in denying the existence of a Christmas party that plainly was, are degrading politics and with it the functioning of the British state. Now, that's a very profound statement uh, and to speak to your point earlier, it hasn't gotten any better since then, has it? It's got worse. I mean, I, where do we start? The British Prime Minister, you know, the kind of European pillow of NATO, trying to head off, you know, Russian aggression in Ukraine, actually postpones not once but twice phone calls with President Putin because of his fight for political survival at home. I was very struck that we've made commitments in COP26 on net zero, yet the levelling up white paper has been stripped of commitments on the opportunities that there are in the north of England, the Midlands, for creating economic activity around transitioning the economy because he doesn't want to offend his conservative right. George Eustace, the Environment Secretary, uh, produced a strategy for the water industry in which there was downgrading of commitments on sustainability of a key kind of platform of a drive, of a drive to net zero. What about the unilateral decision to defund, to try to defund the BBC mm. that Nadine Doris took in a newspaper article before she even told the House of Commons she later had to retract the fact that the license fee was going to be over. It was just going to be frozen. But, you know, wherever you look in domestic policy, civil servants are, I mean, wherever you look in domestic policy, you see retreat, fudge, hesitation, non-follow through, things put on ice, mistakes being made. I'm amazed at how the British government has connived in Mr. Potts' decision to kind of stop the verification of, kind of imports into Northern Ireland, an offence under the Northern Ireland Protocol. And, and of course, it is disregarding uh, an international agreement and may very Absolutely. irresponsibly collapse an executive, which the last time it collapsed took three years to, to get it back up and running. And it's it's only in its 
a very delicate stage trying to get back and repair the damages from then. But in the in all of the scenario that you're talking about, it's very unlikely to see Boris Johnson chastise or ask them to pull back. In fact, he's likely to double down because it re-emphasizes his Brexit agenda, which again speaks to his base. And we're very fearful here in Ireland that he will just disregard it and again use it shamelessly to his own advantage. Do you, do you think that that's likely? Yes. You know, David Frost, um, who was the Brexit minister, is now, you know, stirring up trouble as a kind of one of the lead the lead figures of the ultra right, kind of insisting that Johnson can only survive if he, quote, uh, I'm not sure I've got the exact quote right, but it's going to clears out number 10 of kind of woke warriors, kind of green fanatics. He's kind of really moves to a kind of low tax kind of government trying to kind of meet the Brexit promise by diverging from EU regulations and uh, disregarding kind of commitments that might have been made in the in the in the treaty negotiations. I mean it's extraordinary posture from mm. David but he you know he wins support from a group of Tory MPs who really should kind of behave differently. But the European Union, um, in relation with the European Union, Tory MPs seem to think that you can disregard commitments just willy-nilly because it is the European Union. It's not Uh, doing their reputation around the world any good. And it's also not a good look for them if they're trying to create trade deals with other countries for the future, for the UK. (laughs) Yeah, we're on the same page, I think, on this one. You know, there's parts of the Tory party have really become the enemy within. I mean, this kind of right wing stuff has turned their heads. Brexit has turned their heads. And a kind of a a political economy that emerged under Mrs. Thatcher, in which um, four newspapers, um, The Sun, The Telegraph, Express and Mail, which is half the readership, rather more than half the readership of the British press, are kind of relentlessly um, right wing and moving right wing and kind of help the Tory party to deliver majorities with only thir- with sometimes less than 40% of the popular vote in a first-past-the-post voting system, and that kind of winner-take-all system, so that if you have more than 325 MPs, you can do what, and control the House of Commons, you can do literally what you want. Mm. Um, and uh, it's kind of got turned their heads. I mean, they've been in power for 12 years. They don't seriously think they're going to lose the next general election because of the ongoing weakness of Keir Starmer and the fact the Labour Party kind of isn't 20 points in the polls comforts them. They think that this machine will go into action in 23 or 24, 2023, 2024, and with the promise of tax cuts, you know, it, it, the usual black magic will, will work will work, and we'll have a, another term in office. And so, you know, the lack of kind of checks and balances in the British Constitution the way the constitution has been abused to kind of deliver a government which has tremendous capacity to do whatever it likes. I mean, that's the way executive discretion works in the UK. Henry VIII powers, etc. I want to turn your attention to something else that's being abused. And it's not something in this debate that I've seen looked at a great deal. And it's number 10 on how that operates. Now, I was a serving government press secretary for the Irish government and uh, an advisor afterwards on Northern Ireland. And so I've had cause to visit uh, number 10 Downing Street on a number of occasions for meetings. It's a very solemn place of business. You get a sense of history when you walk through the door. Your phones are taken away from you because of security issues. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's a job. It's a place of work. Uh, and it's it's a very busy, functioning, 
strict environment when I was there. Prime Minister Johnston has led them to a situation where their operations are now under criminal investigations because they've had parties, 12 of them, which constitute uh, functions that flouted regulations. Can you, somebody who's been analysing this far more than I have for many decades, tell me how we got to this point and, and, and am I right? We've, we've moved far away from what most people who work with Downing Street like you can reasonably expect. Well, look, I mean, I, I, I like you, have left my mobile phone in that little bank on the left-hand side as you were walking to Downing Street uh, to go to meetings, you know, briefings and mm. goodness knows what. That is why any number of people on the you know conservative wing of British politics the dismay and the and the sense of shame about what's taking place kind of bewilders them. I mean, I mean, I thought Theresa May's acid remarks in the House of Commons. Incredible. On That's one prime minister to a serving prime minister. I mean, you talk about Ted Heath and Mrs. Thatcher. I mean, bloody hell. I mean, this, mm. <laughs> this was a new level of rancor. And of course, when Boris Johnson and Dominic Cummings suspended, withdrew the whip from 23, or was it 21 or 23? Anyway, um, 21, I think it's 23, Tory MPs back in um, uh, the autumn of 2019 and reinstated some and others kind of left the party altogether. The rancour of that and the hatreds of that are kind of there two and a half years later, as well as the sense that actually the Brexit that was that Mrs May kind of was within a few a handful of votes in the House of Commons from getting a Brexit that would have kind of been far less damaging than the Brexit we have. And that Boris Johnson was the man above any other who ensured that that handful of votes was kind of not forthcoming, which he used brazenly to become Prime Minister and unseat Theresa May. I mean that the brutality of that um, exercise uh, has left a lasting scars in the Conservative Party. And now they see, you know, I mean, industrial drunkenness. This is Mandy Johnston with you on Newstalk Taking Stock. Kind of, I'm joined now by a, Dan O'Brien, you know, who's the chief economist at the Institute um, of International and European Affairs and columnist for the Sunday Business the, Post. Dan, you know, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us on Taking Stock I, today. I, I don't think you can get, Thanks I know that me, you man. can intellectually. Now, this week, very positive exchequer figures. And we also had noises from the political parliamentary parties in government that said the cost of living is clearly emerging. As their first um, big post-COVID concern, which extends uh, 100 to euro fuel I mean, credit, they say, is not enough you know, to, to deal with the inflationary issues that households in, are in facing. Neil Radker wants to do more. Michael Martin thinks it could fuel inflation further. It's not going to hit the right people. We've had the ECB meeting this week and their views on the inflation situation. What's your view on inflation? Is it transitory, Dan? Or is it here for the long term? And if it is, what are the tools any government, and in particular ours, might use to help households. Well, on the first one, uh, in terms of Europe, 
uh, I'm still on the transitory side. If we look at most of the inflation he, that's been generated, earlier, it's coming from a single source, and that is energy. Now, it's not only this, that. There's um, some feed through into things like food prices. How much damage but he does to the energy market is very, very volatile. There are a range of issues that have caused energy prices to rise. I don't see them rising further on that basis or much and on that basis, I'm next. still so in a dwindling group, but still of the view will that the on the European side, a um, that we won't be into in for do, a, a period of long, much higher inflation. No I think it's going to come down over the course of this year. Okay, so what can the government do about it? Well, very difficult when you're in a monetary union as Ireland is. We don't control interest rates, and traditional interest rates have been used to dampen demand in the economy if excessive demand is the cause of inflation. So there's, there's, there's not much we can do. And in some ways, the situation in Ireland now, we're, we're higher, we have tended over recent months to be higher than the Eurozone average. Um, no. That it's, it's a little like the early 2000s, just after monetary union started, and we adopted the Euro. Ireland's inflation rate was running well ahead of the average, and there was not that much that could be done. Now, that is not necessarily a major problem. Of course, it's a problem for people's uh, that the purchasing power of their wages and salaries. Um, but from a competitive perspective, it's only if that were to go on for a number of years we need to get worried from an overall economy perspective. So I'm still not as worried as many people are about, about inflation prospects, either for Ireland or, or for the wider euro area. Now, you mentioned the inflationary effect in the early 2000s, and I've seen you writing about this before. Um, it That went on to substantially impact our competitiveness, didn't it? Absolutely. That's that's you know what happened in the we started the century in the Celtic Tiger mode, as people may remember, um, and the the economy and lost competitiveness. It got flabby. Uh, it shifted into building houses and focusing on the domestic side. Our exports stagnated. We didn't get as many foreign multinational jobs, and the whole economy sort of got got got. Um, got uncompetitive. So we wouldn't, certainly we wouldn't want that, but it would take, I think it would take a number of years for our inflation rates to be well ahead of the rest of the Eurozone before we'd see a real serious competitiveness problem. So again, that is just an issue that I'd be a le- little bit less worried about than some other people. Is there anything else that you're concerned about that could affect our competitiveness? Uh, well, there are many things like the housing issue. Mm-hmm. One of the reasons Irish inflation has been running a bit ahead of, of the rest of the Eurozone is because our rent inflation uh, has been much higher. Now, you know, it, it didn't get remarked upon that much before the pandemic, but rent inflation had really come down a lot before the pandemic and housing costs have taken off again uh, since the pandemic uh, in, in recent over the past year or so. Uh, and that's affected rents much more than most of the European countries. So you you have higher rents and they're already high here. Um, That is definitely something that will turn off workers from skilled workers from coming here. um, And that is a competitiveness uh, issue to watch for. Yeah, and something else that affects workers is their wages. Um, When does this all start affecting uh, wage demands? Well, there's, there's no sign of it yet. Now, the last set of figures we have on wages is the third quarter of last year. So, you know, things things may start kicking in uh, as people re- leave jobs and shift jobs. That there's, great t- there's talk of the great resignation, many people moving jobs. And rather than trying to get more pay out of an existing employer, they simply resign and get it, take a higher job elsewhere. And we could get pay inflation that way. Um, but in Ireland, as 
the rest of Europe, we're not seeing that second round effect of higher prices feeding into higher pay yet. Now, that could well happen. And uh, certainly because people's purchasing power has been eroded by this inflation at about 5%, uh, there will certainly be uh, pressure for that. But uh, from an economic perspective, the big concern about inflation is that wages and prices start chasing each other and you go back to a sort of 70s, 80s mm. situation. There's no sign of that yet. Uh, now, it is early days. You know, if we think back just 12 months ago, nobody was talking about inflation last last February. It, it really took off quite suddenly. Uh, so, you know, it is it's certainly a possibility and central banks are, are watching it very closely. Um, some of them are already acting because they feel they got behind the curve in dealing with inflation. Um, the central bank that matters most to us, the European Central Bank, has not done anything yet. And in my view, um, is it's saying that it won't raise interest rates because it feels the inflation outlook is, is uh, controllable. And I, I happen to share that view. So I I think for those for those uh, people who are uh, worried about um, interest rates going up, um, in my view, that this year is not the year that that's going to happen. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnston. We're talking to economist Dan O'Brien, who's chief economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs. I just think the culmination of the inflation issue, it's, it's a workers market at the moment, um, you know, that that wages issue thing could creep in uh, a lot sooner than than people might expect i just um, want to again pick your brains on the solutions to the to the inflation problem from a domestic situation and we all accept that energy prices are the thing that's driving a lot of the inflation i think 30 percent at least why why wouldn't government here just reduce vat on energy bills well, there is there is pressure to do that. I know there's a discussion about whether uh, that is possible in an EU context. Mm. So I'm not I'm not a lawyer, so I'm not sure whether that is whether it is uh, possible for uh, <coughs> for a government to reduce its VAT because part of the EU budget comes from VAT uh, revenues. Uh, but there's also the issue that if you know if you start doing things around energy that you take away the incentive people have to shift away from higher fossil fuels and you know in in terms of the green agenda you certainly want people to start actively considering uh, the the you know electric cars going doing things more more insulation so uh, with the greens in government in particular uh, doing things to offset increased uh, fossil fuel prices uh, you know th- th- there's certainly uh, an environmental uh, reason for not doing that. I see. So it, um, it it might be a practical solution, but it might not align with a particular government's policy agenda. And so y- you might see why they wouldn't want to uh, progress down that road. Dan, can I ask you to turn for a moment to the Exchequer returns, uh, which which came out this week? What did you make of those? I, I look, I, I've been really surprised how strong the, the bounce back in tax revenues mm. has been. Um, again, I've been surprised about the bounce back in the economy. You know, if you told me two years ago that we would have gone through everything we've gone through and the economy would be doing as well as it's doing, uh, you know, I, I wouldn't have believed it. I, I really would have thought that it would have been a lot worse. So, you know, the economy is clearly incredibly resilient. And that's not just an Irish experience. It's particularly strong in Ireland because we have two sort of perfect industries for a pandemic, pharmaceuticals and tech, which drive our exports, account for well over half of our exports. Um, 
but the the strength of the the public finances uh, i suppose reflects the strength of the the rebound in the wider economy uh, although i would say you know we're not out of the woods the amount of uh, stimulus the government is putting into the economy remains very high and we're only going to really know you know, when all of those those supports are withdrawn and we get back to some sort of new normal, are we going to know just exactly how how well or not the public finances have come through all of this? In your view, is this the time to introduce some in, infrastructural wealth fund or a rainy day fund or a national pension reserve fund a la Charlie McCreevy's idea? Is this the time they should be starting to do something like that? No, I, I, you know, at a time, Mandy, when the government is, is still borrowing a lot more than it's taking in, despite those st- recovering mm. uh, uh, tax revenues, you know, to, to st- set up any fund is effectively more borrowing. So borrow to put money into an investment fund is, is not what I, what I think the sensible thing. I think you'd have to get back into surplus mm. and then start putting money aside. So now would not be the time, in my view, to, uh, to do that because I don't think we need any more borrowing. Uh, we're doing quite enough of that as it is. I just want to turn to the the ECB and what's happening there. Um, and one of the things I observed this week is that the markets are beginning to factor in a double interest rate increase for for this year. Um, so they're not aligned with your opinion or or Christine Lagarde's opinion of the transitory nature of um, inflation. Who's right? Well, look, I, naturally, I'm going to say I'm right, but I stand to be corrected. Um, you know, the, as you say, clearly. Um, more and more uh, economists and observers are fearful about inflation, even in the eurozone, where the underlying rate is much lower than the US, for example. But are fearful that it's going in the wrong direction. Uh, they may be right. Uh, you know, they may be right. It certainly inflation has gone a lot higher than than most people expected. Um, but the ECB is in a really difficult position. Mm. Not only is it dealing with inflation. When the pandemic broke out, it went into this money printing uh, business big time and it started buying up government bonds in countries, all countries across the Eurozone to make sure that they could could fund their way through the pandemic. Now, Italy particularly was in a dire position even before the pandemic. It, it, it It had Greek levels of debt. You know, what was keeping the people in Frankfurt and Brussels awake at night who deal with economic policy was Italy. And that was before the pandemic. The, the, the European Central Bank is basically bankrolling the Italian government. And if it starts pulling that away, there's a real fear there's going to be a Greek-style panic in, in the bond market and Italy's going to run out of road. So the ECB is not only fighting inflation, it also knows that if it pulls support away quickly or too soon, mm. it risks triggering a financial crisis that will be much worse than um, you know a period of 5% inflation. So it, it's in a really sticky position and it's got the hope that inflation doesn't get out of control because then it's going to be fighting two different targets and it will be in a really, really difficult position. Actually, Dan, there, we had a, a gentleman on, on the programme a number of weeks ago called Adam Tooze, who I'm sure you've come across, who's written a fantastic book called Shutdown. Um, and it goes into the supports uh, that were introduced and provided for different EU member states uh, throughout the the pandemic. And he makes that point very well. If if it's a fascinating read for anybody who's who's interested in just going back and looking at um, all of the different policies which were introduced for different countries. Um, it, it's as I say, it's it's a very useful book, but it's also a, f- a fascinating read. And um, Dan, I wanted to ask you one final question, please. Is you know the supply issues that the global ones from around the world that have been affecting so many things over the last two years. Is there any sign of that abating that things are beginning to move again? 
Yeah, absolutely there is. And, you know, the logistics industry is an incredibly efficient industry, watching how those people uh, shift massive amounts of stuff around the world at short notice is is really, um, you know, for, for those of us in the economics business who, who marvel at the, at, at the free market and how efficiently it works, logistics is a, is a great, great case study. So it is already happening um, that, that, that it's easing up. I think it's also important to note a lot of the logistics stuff, a lot of the supply chain stuff was Asia, Asia west coast of the U.S., and it didn't impact Asia, Europe as much. Now, I know, you know, a lot of American news tends to get, if we see something happening in America, we often tend to think it's happening here as well. But I think it is important to say that the supply chain disruption that happened uh, globally was something in the Pacific more than uh, between Europe and Asia. And again, that's one of the reasons perhaps why inflation has been lower in Europe than in the United States, where it's really taken off. OK, we'll leave it there. And uh, look, that's fascinating. I'm sure that we'll return uh, to discuss this in the months ahead, Dan. But for now, we'll have to leave it there. That's Dan O'Brien, Chief Economist at the Institute of International and European Affairs and columnist for the Sunday Business Post. Dan, thank you very much for joining us today on News Talk. Thank you, Mandy. This is Mandy Johnston with you on News Talks Taking Stock. We're joined now by leading business journalist Charlie Weston, who's the personal finance editor of the Irish Independent. Charlie, you're very welcome. Thanks for joining us today. Not at all. You're welcome. Thank you. Thank you, Mandy. So we're going to talk today a little bit about fintech companies operating in Ireland. But so we might start off, Charlie. Can you explain to us what a fintech company is? Is it just an internet banking app? I suppose that's essentially what it is. You know, the two big ones here are Revolut and N26. And essentially, they have smartphone, their smartphone payment apps. Uh, you know, you can use them on, on, on a conventional PC, laptop, but essentially they're about smartphones. Uh, and, 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 and that's, I suppose, financial technology. These are the guys who've come up with really good technology and um, you know, they're, they're very easy to use on your phone. And uh, uh, the, the, the apps are very, very good, usually. Yeah, now you mentioned uh, Revolut there. I couldn't believe uh, this week that there were 1.7 million Irish customers already. So it's it's really successful. And, and as we heard, it's now going to start offering more services and in particular personal loans here. I think what's interesting about this week is, uh, and what I want to talk to you about, is that they're not going to be using an Irish e-license. They've said they're going to use uh, one from Lithuania. Lithuanian. Yeah, yeah. Lithuanian. Um, but it was actually awarded one itself by the central bank. Is there any significance or what is the significance in the fact that they're they're not using the Irish one? Yeah, we don't really know what happened there, but we know they've been a long time trying to get a license from the Irish central bank. And they got one in December. There wasn't a full banking license. Mm. It was an e-money, they call it. So, you know, more restrictive than a full banking license. So what they're saying to me and all they will say is, look, they've, they've since at the same time, Got a full banking license from Lithuania, which is part of the European uh, European Eurozone. Uh, and, you know, once they got that, they applied to the European Central Bank and they're now covered as a, a bank that can operate across Europe because they, the Lithuanian uh, banking, full banking license that they have allows them to passport, as they call it, into other countries. So that's what they're going to use here to, to launch a bank. So you know, it'd be more a digital bank, essentially uh, offering, as you say, Mandy, loans, 
credit cards, uh, that, that, that kind of thing uh, coming down the tracks, which has really rattled the Irish banks here because, as you correctly say, it's, 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 it's increasing in, in um, customers has been absolutely extraordinary. They've had a meteoric rise in this market. Uh, in a few short years, they've gone to 1.7 million customers. They're really eating the lunch of the big banks uh, because the payment app is so good for Revolut. And, you know, uh, their timing is excellent as well because mm. if two big retail banks closing down here, you know, we don't have firm timelines, but it, it'll happen some stage this year. You know, the, the um, Ulster Bank customers will probably be told this month you need to find another um, new banking arrangement. So there's about almost a million personal and, and business customers there, probably another half a million with KBC, and they'll be looking for somewhere else to do their banking as well. So there's a big, big uh, chunk of customers out there up for play, and the likelihood is that Revolut and N26, but Revolut in particular, would pick up a, a big chunk of those now that they have a, a more rounded offering to, to come with, with loans and, uh, and uh, credit cards. Mind you, it's interesting. Mm. You, you're not going to get the full banking experience because they don't have, uh, they're not ha talking about an, an overdraft in Revolut. N26 are saying they will have overdrafts, but I mean, that that's probably going to be very important to, to people to have an overdraft. You know, they may have had an overdraft with KBC and with, uh, or with Ulster. So if you move over to Revolut, will you have an overdraft? Mm -hmm. There's no plans for, at the moment for them to introduce that. Yeah, so different customer experience. Now, you mentioned Ulster Bank and KBC, and they've obviously declared that they're, they're getting out of the Irish market now and such a limited offering from, from the other banks. So you'd think that the central bank uh, would be more inclined to try and attract fintech companies to come and operate out of the Irish market. Are you aware of any other companies who are experiencing similar type delays to the ones that, that Revolut have experienced? Yeah, well, you know, there's some question marks for the central bank here. And it's interesting that this comes at a time when there's um, a probe, I suppose, being done in the Department of Finance. They're mm -hmm. doing, they have a, a, a kind of, they're looking at why we've lost two big important banks like Ulster Bank and um, KBC. You know, that's really going to rip uh, banking apart in this country and, and gives a very uh, big advantage to the, to the incumbents, AIB, Bank of Ireland and Permit TSB and, and and those those three banks you know they're, they're taking over parts of the um, the operations of Ulster and KBC so you know there, there's there's a lot of criticism from banks that the, the, the central bank comes down on them too heavily ever you know we were, the regulation was far too lax too loose before the financial collapse and but the, the opposite is it's gone the other way now is the criticism of the central bank so questions are being asked look is the central bank is it, is it overbearing is it overpowering is it asking banks to put them put aside for example too much capital when they when they uh, issue a mortgage that's one big criticism of the of the banks here that they have to put up three times more capital than the average across europe uh, when, when a mortgage is issued so that makes it difficult for conventional banks to operate here and then you know there's criticism this week of the central bank's failure to 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 to, to be more accommodating of fintechs mm -hmm. i suppose you know mm -hmm. to to to, to, to make the application process smoother and quicker. Um, and, you know, and, and, and interesting, it's very interesting that Revolut's going to use its Lithuanian banking license. Now, that's where it's, it's headquartered. But the Lithuanians uh, have decided to, to, to encourage fintechs and, and to promote that whole area. Now, the central bank would say, look, it's not our role to promote any form of banking. We're a regulator. We're not, it's, you know, the IDA does the promotion of the country as a, an investment of choice. But... But there are questions to be asked. The central bank will have to kind of come up with, you know, 
and, and examine what it does. It, 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 did it just shy away from um, accommodating the likes of Revolut here with, 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 with an e-money license to make it too difficult because it doesn't like the idea of this kind of bank that operates on a, on a large scale across across Europe and you know th- that it's not just uh, based in Ireland and has branches here. Mm. This is a bank with 18 million personal users and uh, operates in about 35 different con- countries you know so there's overlaps everywhere very difficult to regulate it so the central bank probably decided mm, don't like the look of this one and there's big risks around money laundering and how can we keep on top of that if, if, if even operation like revolute that we have to regulate so you know there may be an element of they've shied away from getting them getting anywhere near trying to regulate uh, Revolut didn't want to know about it because it's too co- too messy for them, too mm. too complicated. Yeah, you, you've been studying and analysing this uh, on behalf of the consumer uh, for a long, long time now. You've seen it when regulatory policy maybe was too lax. You've gone through the, the financial crisis almost with the financial institutions. Do you think maybe, Charlie, in what you're seeing now that the central bank has actually swung too far in the other direction when you're losing things like Revolut and it doesn't seem like a huge number of jobs, but there's still a, there's 100 people employed in, in Revolut, as I understand it, in Ireland and 3,000 across the globe. You know, that's that's valuable, isn't it? It is. And, you know, um, it's interesting that we're a tech hub in, 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 in many other ways. You know, we have, a, you know, the big, the, big, the big technology companies all have massive European bases here in Ireland. And yet, you know, we're not a great innovator on, on fintechs. The fintechs people would argue, you know, it's, it's difficult to operate here. And so, you know, they, they will operate here, but they're coming in here passporting from uh, a regulation based in another country. Like N26 is is got a German banking license. It's regulated by BaFin, the German regulator. And the German regulator doesn't mm-hmm. have a great, um, you know, recently got itself into in, into an awful mess with um, its poor regulation of Wirecard, and, and and that was a, an enormous collapse. But I suppose it's a difficult balance, you know, mm. for, for the central bank. I mean, they they overdid it certainly during 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 the um, you know in the in the lead, overdid the laxity in the lead up to to the collapse, and uh, now they're going the other way. And 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 a lot of people would say, you know, it, it's intervention in terms of mortgages and demanding that people you know, have three and a half times the, their income before they can get a mortgage. That That's making uh, it making it very difficult for people to get a mortgage. And, and the knock-on effect is that rents are ridiculously high and going through the roof. Yeah. But, you know, the central bank will have to answer for poor regulation if it doesn't regulate hard enough. So it's a very difficult balance for the central bank. You know, it, 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 I, I have some sympathy for them, but they do need to, there are questions that, that, that have to be asked at the central bank. Are you kind of overdoing it on the other side now, lads, after after being ridiculously lax uh, in the lead up to the collapse. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to News Talks Taking Stock with me, Mandy Johnson, and we're talking to Charlie Weston, who's personal finance editor of the Irish Independent. And maybe we're just, as a country, uh, we've arrived at a situation where we're not good at doing regulation or we've just provided a little bit too much red tape and and it may in time affect our competitiveness uh, who's to know but I, I get the point that you're making that, that we need we do, they obviously need to be very cautious and, and mindful of the past can I just um, ask you some a technical question about the the Revolut um, offering that's that's going to come from the consumer's point of view um, and you may not be able to answer this yet, but what, what interest rate do you think that they'll apply? Will there be a pan-European rate, a global rate, or will it be country by country? We don't know yet. They haven't priced it yet, Mandy. But you know, it's interesting. You know, we are expensive for loans. We're mm-hmm. expensive for mortgages here. So, you know, it, it may well be that Revolut comes in here with a, a compelling 
personal loan product, uh, a, a competitive one. Now, this must be a real worry for credit unions because essentially their main source of income is personal loans. So if Revolut comes in here with an, an easy-to-access uh, loan product, um, it, 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 it could spell very bad news for credit unions. And remember as well, uh, the buy now, pay later uh, thing is coming in here in a big way as well at the moment. So, you know, that, 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 that that's another threat to, to credit unions. It's also, you know, the banks are less involved in personal loans, but they, they, they do see a threat from the likes of Revolut coming in here who can be very competitive. Remember, they're a very low-cost operator mm-hmm. because they don't have a legacy of old-fashioned IT systems, which is uh, holding back the banks here. Like, they don't have... They're trying to get an instant payment system together between them, and uh, that's gone, you know, that's been looked at by the competition authority. It's, you know, that's been delayed. Uh, banks also have a branch network. I mean, hundred, you know, Bank of Ireland, AAB, both around 170 branches each, and permanent TSB about something like, I think, about 90 branches and, and, and maybe take over another 25 of Ulster banks. But... You know, I mean, they're a legacy cost, but I mean, as well, you know, the banks will argue, conventional banks will argue. Look, if you're getting a full banking experience, you get an overdraft. We've branches. You can you can lodge checks. Uh, you you get a human person eventually if you can get through. If you have a problem, that's not on offer with the likes of Revolut or N26. They don't have branches. They discourage you withdrawing cash because charges start kicking in if you withdraw too much cash every month. You can't lodge a check anywhere. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, we're, we, we've, we've largely stopped using checks. But at the moment, you can't get overdrafts from, from either of those. And there's another small problem. Many, yes, you know, they're, they're, oper- they're using foreign IBANs at the moment. You know, the, the, the N26 one is a German one. And the uh, IBAN that uh, Revolut uses at the moment is a Lithuanian one. Sometimes that causes problems if you're trying to set up direct debits or standing orders out of a, a Revolut or an N26 account because uh, they're not recognized and you can get a supplier who can be a bit of a messer on that one and decide they don't like the IBAN. There's another usually important factor as well. The ombudsman here, the financial services ombudsman, its remit doesn't apply to these two um, digital banks or fintechs. Oh, that's like. that's interesting. I hadn't realised that. So who regulates this? Them is a huge yeah, industry. Yeah. This is a huge issue, and the reason for that is the contracts you get as a customer with Revolut is a Lithuanian contract. The contract you get with N26 is a German contract. Ah. So unless they issue Irish contracts, the financial regulator, which is a semi-judicial function here, mm-hmm. and its decisions. Decisions can be, you know, uh, appealed to, to the courts, to the high court. So unless you, you have an Irish contract, the ombudsman can get involved if you have a dispute. Now, that could be a real problem because, you know, they, you don't have a, a mediation service, a state mediation service, which is very cheap to use and can be, if, there, if there's a problem, you, you, you need to go to the ombudsman. Now, mm-hmm. they, both of them say, look, they have internal dispute mechanisms, you know, um, they, they they tend not to be you don't tend to get to speak to somebody human but they and they also uh, a revolutionary saying which is very important that they do they will agree to to use the the ombudsman service here but look at it's not it's not part of our it's not part of law because the contracts are the, the Revolute contracts are Lithuanian contracts. You know, but that's a very important uh, point, Charlie, and, and these are the things that we miss in the, the fine print, but you don't. Can I just pick you up uh, just to final, well, one final question on something that you mentioned there, um, our old friends, the credit unions, and um, what's their loan book like at the moment? We were talking earlier about the, the central bank and the onerous um, um, you know the onerous uh, what what the restrictions that they put on the loan to saving ratios in things like the credit unions. How is their loan book doing at the moment? 
Yeah, well, you know, some of them are expanding at, at, at a phenomenal rate. You know, I was looking recently at the accounts of the health service one. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, obviously, the health service encompasses a lot of people, thousands and thousands of people. And what's called the HSSCU, um, Health Services, um, st- Health Staff Services Credit Union, bit of a mouthful. There's, uh, I, the figures in that were phenomenal. They've seen an enormous growth. Something like, I can't remember, something I calculated the increase in in their loan book was huge. So so some of the big ones, some of the better ones are seeing their their, their loan books improve um, and and they're doing better. But the the last thing they need now is a a more concentrated banking system where you have AIB, uh, Permit TSB and Bank of Ireland expanding by, by getting you know, the books of, of Ulster and KBC and then Revolut and N26 coming in here yeah. with very low cost operations and, and, and essentially eating their lunch. So, um, it, 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 you know, there could be a real threat from the fintechs to, to, to the um Yeah, unfortunately, unfortunately, it, it might be a difficult and even more difficult operating environment for them. Um, Charlie, will we will well return to this space in the future as banking is obviously something that's really important to all of us and, and core to business. Charlie, thank you for your very valuable insights today and for joining us on Taking Stock. You're welcome. 